Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Emily Dickinson Bryant and Jerry Longfellow Rowland. Me, like I said, I'm just Josh Clark. I'm not a poet. And if I am, I don't know it. <gasps> Why don't you come over and help me straighten out my Longfellow? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the great Rodney Dangerfield. Was it? And back to school. Yeah, but I think we should start off by saying that, you know, Jerry likes to deliver confidence builders right before we hit record. Yeah, she goes. <laughs> <laughs> she said, hey, something I've noticed uh, when you guys record, too, if there's one that you think stinks, uh, record that one first. Yeah. <laughs> This one we're recording first. <laughs> I like this one, though. I do, too. Jerry apparently is not down with poetry, though. Jeez. She's like, it's stupid. She's base. I hate poetry. <laughs> I like regular sentences. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. She's a fan of prose. Yeah. Uh, what this episode did for me was reminded me that I like poetry. Yeah? Yeah, I remember now, as an English major... Really getting into it for a little while. I'll bet you had to read a lot of poetry for that. I did, and some of it I didn't like at all, but a lot of it I really, really liked. And yeah. I, I just realized I don't read a lot of poetry anymore, and I really kind of dug it. There's plenty of good poetry out there for sure. I've never been one to be like, uh, I'm going to sit here and read poetry all day. Well, it does carry a certain like you know? <laughs> thing. Although I have smoked a pipe before. Some of my... uh Long sleeve shirts have suede patches on the elbows, sure. but I guess I'm just a poser because I don't sit around reading poetry. But I do appreciate yeah. a, a good poem. Well, I think that was that's my deal. Is uh, like a really good poem just impresses me to no end. Sure. Yeah. Oh man, try try writing a poem yourself. I did once. How'd it go? Uh, I post college wrote a poem that I liked so much I sent it to the New Yorker. Oh, you liked it that much, huh? Yeah. I liked it enough to, you know, realize rejection. Did it turn out that Ziggy had already done the same poem? No. You you know the reference? No. Oh, there's a Seinfeld where Elaine sent in a comic to the New Yorker, but it turns out she had ripped off a Ziggy. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's a good one. Anyway, I have a copy of this somewhere, a hard copy only, I think, some in some box. You didn't bring it today? Well, no. I mean, it's got to be in my attic, but I need to get it in, because uh, I, I remember thinking, like, it's pretty good. Well, yeah. I mean, if you sent it to the New Yorker, I, I would guess you thought very highly of it. But I was also 23 and, you know, probably thought, you know, I wrote my first poem. I'm going to send it to the New Yorker. Yeah. Oh, so it was your first. First and only. First, you're like, this is going to the New Yorker. First, first shot. Yeah. That's funny. That's, like, akin to, like... Just writing your first script and being like, I should get this in Scorsese's hands. This is, I might as well prepare my Oscar <laughs> speech. Anyway, I did get a rejection letter, but it was nice to you know get that even. Yeah, you should have it framed next to your poem. Yeah. I'd like to see this poem or hear it. Uh, it was sort of longish, and it was about a kid jumping in a pile of leaves in the fall. That's nice. But uh, as you'll we will see, it had, you know, symbolism and... Uh, and metaphor, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I never said leaves or pile of leaves or <laughs> you never anything like that. You know, it was all like very, I thought, skillfully sort of crafted. Yeah. Like you just put me on my head. Like I thought that you, the poem was about jumping into leaves and the leaves were a metaphor for something else. But it's about doing something else that's a metaphor for jumping in a pile of leaves. No, it was about a kid jumping in a pile of leaves. I just never explicitly said that. I see. 
you know, he like became a, a locomotive, like a steam train, and huh. it was sort of fanciful. Oh, I and, gotcha. Uh, that kind of thing. Oh, but that was good. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was pretty good. I think everyone wants to hear this poem now. You're <laughs> going to have to post it. Well, if I dig it up, I will definitely read it in a very special Stuff You Should Know episode. Okay. It's a deal. Called How to Get Our Listeners to Jump into a Ravine. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things, Chuck, that when I was researching this, I went, I looked all over for, you know, learning to appreciate poetry or, you know, what it takes just for some advice because it's always been a tough nut to crack for me, which I think makes me like just about everybody. And I came across this, uh, this essay on poets.org. Um, and it's called How to Read a Poem. And it is, it's, that's exactly what it's about. Uh-huh. It's written in prose form, thankfully, so you can understand it, like right off the bat. And, um, the author made this, uh, this point. He said that readers make three false assumptions when addressing an unfamiliar po- poem, right? The first is that they assume they should understand the poem right out of the gate, first time they read it. Yes. Yeah. And that if they don't, there's something wrong with them. Or, Probably less frequently, there's something wrong with the poem. Right. This poem doesn't work. <laughs> I don't get it. The second is that they, they, that there's, in any given poem, there's a code, and that if you can crack the code, you get the whole poem. Right. And the poem's only about one certain thing, and it's all encoded in one way. Yeah. And that's that. Like, you just crack it, bam, you're done, poem's been read. Right. And then the third one, is assuming that the poem can mean anything the reader wants it to mean. That's not true. The poem means what the author intended it to mean. Well, yeah. <clears throat> it's open to interpretation, certainly. Yeah. But the poem still, from what I'm gathering here, there's no poet who ever wrote something and was like, I have no idea what that means. Yeah, but I have heard poets and songwriters say, like, you know, I meant it to be this way, but it's whatever you take it. You sure, know? yeah. And I think there's a lot of uh, meaning imbued in, in not just poetry, but any kind of writing, any kind of art Yeah. Um, by the viewer, by the listener, by the he- by whoever, sure. right? Um, but the, the point is a poem is so meticulously crafted that you can bet every word, every literally every syllable in every single line was handpicked and almost sculpted. And it, it all comes together to point out that the best way to approach poetry is as a, a, a typewritten object of art. Yeah, agreed. And that, that once you come at it like that, and that it's going to be hard, it's going to give you trouble, but yeah. the, the more trouble it gives you, the more rewarding it's going to be when you understand it. Mm-hmm. If you come at a poem like that, and that you're not going to get it the first time out, that you're supposed to spend some time and effort on it, you can start to appreciate poems. Yeah. That's what I got from this in prose. I wonder if one of your issues with poetry is uh, has something to do with how concise poetry is. And you're, you as a writer, like why you haven't written a 2,000-page novel is surprising to me still. <laughs> yeah. You know? Infinite Jest, the sequel. Like I always imagine your book would be like uh, in Wonder Boys. You know, that scene where he gets oh. to sit down and he types out, like, I can't remember the first three digits, but you think, oh, it's 300 words. And then he types, like, an, a four at the end. Uh-huh. It's, like, 3,000 pages long. Right. Yeah, and Katie Holmes is like, yeah, once you started getting into the different lineages of right. the horses that were, <laughs> you stop you stopped making choices. Such a good movie. It is. Um, yeah, what do you think? 
Do you think that's accurate? What? Like why you might... Oh, uh, oh, that it's too concise? No, I can appreciate things that are different. I think for me, it's I I ran into the same thing that this the author of How to Read a Poem um, kind of called out, which is um, you expect to get it the first time, and if you don't, you just get kind of frustrated and you give up. Right. I'm a quitter. I'm a quitter reader. <laughs> that's not true. No, no, I'm, I, I take it back then. Should we talk about history? Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I thought was kind of really neat is that poetry predates literacy. Yeah. By hundreds of years. If not thousands. Yeah, true. Um, I think when, you know, when kind of every site that I looked at talking about the history of poetry all pointed to Epic of Gilgamesh. Such a good story. Um, and just, you know, the kind of the earliest poetry period were these epic poems and, uh, a lot of people think that one reason they turned to poetry was so they could memorize stories. Right, yeah, because if you were a storyteller in your group, you were an historian, that was your role. Yeah. And you needed to remember actual like facts, events, that kind of thing. So it was a way to help record and memorize history in a way. Right, which is kind of a, a revealing thing about poetry because a lot of people think of poetry as written or typed. When really poetry is actually mo- usually intended to be read aloud. Yeah. And, and once you start reading poems aloud, then I think you'll, you'll be like, oh, I see. I hate my voice. <laughs> I don't go to poetry readings, but, um, there is a dude. In fact, I'm going to read one of his poems later. Um, there's a, a modern poet named Derek Brown. Uh-huh. You know Derek? No. I thought you might have met him somehow. He, he tours. He's a touring poet. Cool. And opens up a lot of times for mus- bands and like comedians. He opened for Eugene Merman. Okay. Which is how I met him once. Uh-huh. And um, got to know him a little bit, and he's just great. That's like, pretty cool. Like, his poems are awesome. Well, yeah, I'm sure. If you're a touring poet, yeah. you're not going to suck. But he's trying to sort of, uh, and there are you know, all kinds of, it's not like he's the only person out there writing poetry, but... You know, you see articles about poetry being dead every now and then, and mm. it's just not the case. Yeah, the article either says poetry is dead or poetry is alive and well, but everybody calls it rap. And then somebody else Did writes really? another. Yeah. And there's this huge ongoing debate over whether rap qualifies as poetry, and it's just stupid. All written by, like, <laughs> middle-aged white men. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, so, speaking of epics, the Greeks and the Romans, uh, historically... Uh, between what, 1200 BC and AD 455 was when they were really cranking stuff out. <laughs> and everyone always points to the, the two biggies. Uh, Homer wrote the Iliad, or I'm sorry, Iliad, not the Iliad, and Odyssey. He didn't write the Iliad? <laughs> I don't think the official title is the Iliad. Is it's that just the deal? Iliad. Iliad and Odyssey. Um, I and- was surprised that Hesiod was called out. Yeah. Instead of like Virgil. I would have guessed Virgil would have been name checked sooner as, than he see it. Right, as number two behind uh Homer. Yeah. Yeah. Homer's f- number one for sure. Yeah. Ancient Greek <laughs> ec- epic poets. Yeah, I think so. But he see it. Come on. I don't know. Works in days. Not bad. Yeah. As far as epic poems go. Sure. Which I'm not into. Yeah. I struggled with, with both Iliad and Odyssey. Oh, you read them both? Oh yeah, in English class. Wow. I mean, I, I can't, I can't absolutely look back and say I read them both all the way through for class. <laughs> all right. I might have been a little lazy about it, uh-huh. but we studied them in great detail. Yeah, I, I read enough of, I guess, the Odyssey 
that I started to confuse it with the um, with Odyssey Harry Hamlin. <laughs> um, what uh, Clash of the Titans? Clash of the Titans, yeah. <laughs> or L.A. Law? They just kind of run together. <laughs> um, he started to confuse it with Making Love, his '80s movie. I never saw that one. Yeah, it was a movie about like a, a gay man that was married and had like a secret affair. It Harry Hamlin was him. Well, no, I think the husband was Michael Antkeen. Remember that guy? No. And I think he had the affair with Harry Hamlin because who wouldn't? Well, yeah. You know? I mean, that guy. <laughs> Speaking of, I want to say something. And this uh-huh. has nothing to do with anything. Right. But you just reminded me with 80s movie. Um, I've been watching a lot of riff tracks lately. Yeah. And they kill it. I want to specifically recommend, and if you have an Amazon Prime membership, mm-hmm. it's streaming on Prime. A lot of riff tracks is. Um, Nightmare... At noon, I think is what it's called. So had you not watched a lot of riff tracks? I'd seen a few, but right. I just kind of caught the bug and I've been like, like crying, laughing at some parts. Yeah. Or like I, I'm just wiping my eyes. Like I don't, I, listen to me, man. I don't laugh like that. And it's making me laugh like that. Yeah. Kevin and John, uh, listen to stuff you should know, supposedly. Yeah, I've heard that. Or at least they were nice enough to say that to my face. <laughs> I don't know. Either that or they're just super nice guys who I could, didn't want to make me feel bad. I could kind of see that. They're like, yeah, I listen to stuff it knows. <laughs> uh, so moving on to medieval times, um, things started to get a little more, well, not creative, but they started to expand the poetic horizons a bit um, with the language they used and the subject matter they wrote about, um, Chaucer in particularly started doing something really unusual was writing in the common everyday language, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of didn't happen a lot before him. No, it had been Latin up till then. Yeah. And he's like talking about, you know, common people. Yeah. In the common language. Yeah, well, common for then, but Chaucer's tough. Oh, man. Impenetrable. Yeah, for me. It's like, what's this guy talking about? <laughs> yeah. You need a good teacher for that stuff. Like a really good English teacher that can walk you through that stuff. Yeah, supposedly Canterbury Tales are really interesting and like there's a lot yeah. of wit and humor to them, but yeah, you, it's, it's just really difficult language. Like yeah, I had get a, somebody who knows it. I had a good teacher in college and I had an idea to make Canterbury Tales into a modern movie about, on, but on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I thought that was great. I thought all my ideas were good when I was like 21. Yeah. You know, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's all right. It's no Sharknado. <laughs> you need royalties for that one. Uh, so moving on to the Renaissance period, <laughs> things got even more creative. And uh, this is when we saw new forms of meter, a young man named William Shakespeare, Thomas Marlowe. They started the, the verse drama movement. Right. And so initially you've got poetry is... Um it's just oral history, basically. Yeah. And then the Greeks come along and then the Romans um, and codify it and sh- and make formal structures out of it. Yeah. And then everybody starts to undo those. And it's getting further and further away from the Greeks and the Romans until we hit the Enlightenment period from about the mid-17th century till almost the 18th century, almost the 19th century, I should say, um, and they went back and basically venerated the Greek and Roman traditions, which seems weird to me. But some somebody yeah. somebody was struck and said, 
these guys knew what they were doing. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised too. I would have thought the Enlightenment would have taken things in an even further. Yeah. Like away from that, but I guess not. I guess not. Uh, I think the Romantics did though. Uh, 17, I'm, yeah, 1790 till about 1830. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when they kind of poo-pooed, well, they didn't poo-poo, but they'd strayed a bit from what the Enlightenment was doing. Well, rebelled for sure. Yeah. It seems like there were like periods of strict structure and then rebellion away from that over the decades. Yeah. In centuries. In the history of poetry. Yeah. Which is literally what we're talking about right now. And probably <laughs> a cultural movement as well. I'm sure it was kind of all tied together, right? Sure. Uh, certainly with the transcendentalist movement in the United States. And I used to be all about those cats. Yeah. Loved them. And then I started really learning about Thoreau, and I was kind of like, he was a bit of a weirdo. You know, like in real life, he's an odd, odd dude. Yeah. Yeah. And not like in all great ways, you know? Like he'd just go off and like poop in the corner at a party. He'd just go off and live deliberately like a weirdo. <laughs> uh, poop in the corner at a party? <laughs> all right. Um, but they did, you know, the transcendentalists and the romantics did focus a lot on create uh, nature and stuff like that. Yeah. Like certainly Thoreau. For sure. It was all about it. I liked, let me, I'm just saying, I liked Emerson more than Thoreau. As I got older. Okay. I used to think Thoreau was great. Sure. And then I came to like Emerson more. Well, Thoreau's, that's a young man's game. Sure. Uh, I'm wondering how many people are just like, what are these guys talking about? <laughs> hey, welcome to our new subscribers. Uh, Victorian period, 1832 to 1901. And this is further breaking away from the establishment. And this is when you get like the great granddaddy of them all, Mr. Whitman. Yeah, he's like, psh, structure, meter, yeah. rhythm, you can take it and shove it. I say nuts to that. And things kind of like, that was it from kind of then on. Yeah. Like you had your traditionalists still, and even today you still do, but um, that's when basically all the rules were out the window and you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah. And call it poetry. Thanks to Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass, Baby. <laughs> I think that was the original title. Yeah. <laughs> Comma, Baby. It was, yeah. <laughs> A couple of Ys on the end. Um, should we move into the 20th century too? Well, you kind of have to because it's not like poetry just ended with Whitman. No. The 20th century definitely saw its share of movements. Um, apparently in the very early 20th century, there was a uh, modernist movement that sought to go even further away from the norms. Yeah. And they even rebelled against poor Walt Whitman, who may or may not have still been alive to see this. But they said, you know what? We're sick of your flowery language and your fancy calligraphy and all that. We are going to make short, concise, interesting poems. And that was the modernist movement. I, this is where I, it really started to get interesting for me. The modernists? Yeah. Like I was, I was way into E.E. E. Cummings mm-hmm. and Yeats and Gertrude Stein and Sylvia Plath. Like, what about Robert Frost? Yeah. <laughs> no, he was good. Sure. I mean, listen to me. He was good. He was all right. <laughs> no, he was amazing. He was uh, W.H. Auden. Which one was the one who, like, made pithy rhyming short rhymes? Like, there was a, this is so sad. I got my poetry from King of the Hill, but there was this one <laughs> King of the Hill where Peggy Hill is, um, reciting a poem. She said, uh, the cow is of the bovine ilk. One end gives moo, the other milk. Who was that? It wasn't Ezra Pound, was it? Ezra Pound wouldn't have written something like that. It sounds like something like Oscar Wilde would have done. No, 
It was a Texan, I believe, because they were observing the guy's house. Oh, okay. No idea. Definitely wasn't Oscar Wilde then. Um, anyway, that's when I really got into poetry. Like, it was way more accessible to me. And, like, I could read E.E. E. Cummings and, and sort of get it. I think part of it also, though, Chuck, is your experience was a lot closer in resemblance to the experience of people in the early 20th century than it was to a Puritan writing in New England in, yeah. like, the 17th century, you know? Sure. About how much I love God right? yeah. and my neighbors, <laughs> Yeah, you know? Uh-huh. Like, your experience is different. So, of course, you can identify with it. So, of course, the poetry that's created from that experience is going to speak to you or at least be more accessible to you. I think that's why... A lot of people get turned off from poetry, too. Here's another reason. is because you're indoctrinated into this history of poetry, and it should go backwards. Yeah. It should go counter-chronologically. Like, you should be inculcated in poetry roughly in at least the same century, within the last 50, 60 call, years. actually. And then once you start to get that, you can take on older and older yeah. stuff. But it's like not only do you have to get the poem uh-huh. – you have to get the poem and also understand like a completely different social outlook from somebody who lived a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. It's like, what are, <laughs> what are they even talking about? Well, I was about to give advice to English teachers, but then I realized we just did the same thing. It's like, if you start your class with, all right, let's talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> right. It's like, that's how you can lose a student. All right. But we just did the same thing. Jerry, can you just reverse publish <laughs> this thing backwards? Uh, Surely and if, there's a way. Well, I have to admit, too, my Dead Poet Society had, you know, a pretty big impact on me, too. Never saw it. Shut up. Never saw it. You're kidding. I've never seen it just so I could save this moment. Have you really? Yeah, I've never seen it. We should start a movie podcast where we each just are, like... <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> called You've Never Seen That? Right. So, um, I was inculcated into the work of Robin Williams... In the wrong way, in much that... Morgan oh, Mindy? No, no. Patch Adams. Oh. And once I saw Patch Adams, I was like, I can't see any more Robin Williams movies. You should see Dead Poets Society. I'm sure I should. It's really good. I, I think I've got another 10, 15 years of Patch Adams to wear off first. Is that the only Robin Williams movie you've ever seen? No, that's the last one I saw, though. Oh, okay. Really? Man. No, that's not true. Father of the Year I saw. Ugh. Have you seen it? You're picking the wrong movies. You have, have you seen it? No. Oh, it's good. Oh, it was? In a weird indie way. It's a weird little movie. He oh, did okay. He did good. I think that might be his last one. I think I'm thinking of something else. Yeah, this is a little weird indie movie. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of something different. I think Bob Goldthwaite directed it. Oh, well, then it's good. Yeah. Um, And then we move on. <laughs> we're getting into the 1915s. <laughs> no, we're getting into the mid-40s, and I got into this stuff, too, the Beat Poets. Um, I think every every college student probably went through a little phase sure. where they listened, or, uh, well, and listened to Ginsburg, but read Ginsburg and Kerouac, and, yeah. you know, those those that generation definitely uh, sort of embraced the do-what-you-want with the style. Yeah. and um, Bongos. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was cool. Oh, the beats were awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kerouac in particular. I never got into any of the other guys, but I liked him a lot. Everyone should read Howl by Ginsburg. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, that's his most famous poem, and and I'm sure Ginsburg, big Ginsburg fans will say, ah, of course you can recommend Howl. Yeah. But How trite. You should read <laughs> Howl. Sure. 
and we should take a break. Yes. So, Chuck, we are back, and we are done talking about the history of poetry. Let's talk about poetry itself. Okay. Okay? So, a poem has uh, four lines. And they all rhyme. Yep, they all rhyme. A, 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 A. They're all in iambic pentameter, which we'll describe later. And um, they're each made up of four stanzas. That's a poem. <laughs> Anything else is just commie propaganda. <laughs> right? Yeah. Boy, we're silly today. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should talk about the genres. Um, and, you know, this is one of those topics where we're, we're going to do 50 minutes on poetry when there are, we could do 15 podcasts about poetry. So forgive the, the overviewness of this, but that's <laughs> what we do. Sure. Uh, you have narrative poetry, which is, Poem that tells a story. Yeah, which doesn't have to be an epic poem. It no. doesn't have to be, you know, book length. It can, it can be a very short poem that tells a story, but it's got like basically a plot and action and characters. Yeah, the car yeah. chase. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least one. Yeah. Um, but epic poetry does fall under that banner though. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have dramatic poetry, which we talked about with uh, Shakespeare. Yeah. A lot of people maybe don't even realize that Shakespeare was writing poetry for the stage. Uh, yeah. You know? I guess Or so. maybe they don't think about it that way. I thought everybody thought that's what it was, was poetry. Oh, well. Talk about dense and impenetrable, too. Yeah, it's tough. Can be. Again, need a good teacher. Good teacher, sure. Um, I wish I could remember my teacher's names to shout them out, my college teachers that really sure. like were so great at that. But I think I've talked about him before. I had a great Shakespeare teacher who would just, we just read it out loud in class. Mm-hmm. And he would say, well, this is what's going on. After each, takes. after each, like, you know, couple Line. of stanzas. So you need, yeah, it's like an annotated, live annotated version of uh-huh. Shakespeare. And his theory was, you know, this is what you got to do to make these kids get it. Yeah. But once they get it, they realize that these are modern stories. Right. Just, you know, told in a way that no one can understand. Right. Timeless stories. Yes. Exactly. Uh, lyric poetry is probably if, uh, what a lot of people think of as a poem. Right. You know, it, it might rhyme, doesn't have to tell a story, it doesn't have to have a plot. Um, it's like rhyme and rhythm, and it creates just like this, it's it's for effect of, yeah. uh, of a feeling, maybe. It uses a lot of um, imagery, usually, of different types um, to get you to visualize something or to hear something or imagine what the poet's trying to get across. There's lots of different meanings. It's like, yeah, it's like what people think of when they think of poems. Yeah. Lyric poetry. Remember that one. Uh, and there are many other kinds and genres, but, um, I think those are kind of the main, the main ones that a lot of people consider the, the three main genres. Yeah. Is that fair? I think so. All right. So, when you, we already kind of said it, when you're reading poetry, most of the time you're reading it silently to yourself, and that is not what you're supposed to do. Most poems are written to be read out loud. Even if to your, just to yourself. Yeah. 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 And, um, apparently 
what, what, like the first time from this how to read a poem essay, the first time you go to read a poem, just read it out loud. And the author points out that you will notice a lot of stuff about the poem, mm-hmm. and you don't have to get the meaning right away, but you want to just basically read it out loud at least once. And that alone is going to raise a lot of different flags and markers about the poem to you. Yeah. Because when you read it out loud, the sounds that the words make start to really come out, and that's really what starts to differentiate poetry from prose. The fact that basically sound effects are used yeah. in this written art. Yeah. Like a laser. Pew, pew. <laughs> right. That's how you read a poem. Yeah. Uh, rhyme, obviously, is the, the most common um, or maybe at least most recognizable sound effect. Pew, pew. <laughs> Ooh, that might be alliteration. Yeah. In fact, I think it is. No, that's onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia, right. Ugh. And a snap, Jeez. crackle, pop. English major. Um, we all know what rhymes are, so we're not going to insult you with the definition, but there are also things like near rhymes. Yeah, yeah. Or slant rhymes, which are when, uh, well, kind of when you can't think of a word that really rhymes, but you can get one that's close. So uh, Emily Dickinson apparently was a master of the slant rhyme. Oh, yeah? Yes. How about bear and far? Yeah. I mean, it's close. You're not going to be like, oh, it. that's stupid, and like sw- <laughs> swat the book off of your desk. It's not like bear and orange. No, well, nothing rhymes with orange, right? <laughs> that's why I said it. Supposedly, right? I, I've never heard anything that rhymes with orange. I'm sure there are some emails coming on that one. Orange. Right. Uh, <laughs> there are a couple of other things um, we can talk about, like alliteration and consonants, with uh, N-A-N-C-E and yeah. consonants. Is a good example. Um, mummy's mommy was no common dummy. Yeah, you get that mm sound. Yeah, but it's not necessarily at the beginning of the the word. Right. They were at the beginning of a bunch of different words close together. That would be alliteration. Right. But they are specifically consonants. Uh, right. Alliteration. You're right. That is, you know, the big brown bear bit uh, Benny's butt. Poor Benny. <laughs> yeah. What about? Assonance. That's one of my favorites. That one's tough. That's where um, it can be tough to pick up on. That's where a vowel is repeated or a vowel sound is repeated in a number of words close together um, somewhere in the word. Right. Like the rain in Spain falls gently on the plane. I think mainly on the plane. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> or I like the example they use in here. I might like to fight nine pirates at a time. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I don't know. All the stuff I love... Like, this is poetry's kind of playful quality to me. Right. Or when a poet sits down and you got to put a lot of thought into if you're trying to pull off something like that, you know? Yeah. As you're trying to also tell a story. Oh, yeah. No, like, to to be a genuine poet is to be probably one of the most creative and technically proficient yeah. artists around. Agreed. It's got to be one of the most difficult things to, to do well, I think. Agreed. You know, because think about it. You're a great director. Well, you've got a camera to assist you and really get your vision across. And mm-hmm. You've got this technology. You're uh, a, a author of prose. Well, how many pages did it take you to get your point across? Right. You are a musician. That's great. you got a violin. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> a poet. you got a quill. Yeah. An inkwell. Some paper. You better get it right. It's tough. <laughs> You're wearing your breeches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I th- what, what did I say earlier? Alliteration, but you said it was onomatopoeia? Yeah, that's that's the one where it's, the word sounds like the word it describes. Right, like bang, beep. Snap, crackle, pop. Buzz. Yeah. Snap. Yeah. And cr- crackle. Crackle. Don't forget. Purr. And pop. Clash. <laughs> I like the, I like those words. I would love to see this episode animated. Do you remember the dude who used to animate? <laughs> yeah, they were great. Oh, man. They were better than the actual episodes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this one, I think, would be virtually impossible to animate. I think you're right. Um, and these, of course, are just sort of some of the most common sound effects. There are many tools that a poet can pull out of the old toolbox and use right at their disposal so um sometimes i've found that when you are forced to work within a structure a very highly structured environment yeah you you're able to be more creative mm-hmm. than you might be if it's just like here go crazy no rules yeah because then you have to like you're just thinking about the edges, the boundaries, and then you have to think about how to get creative. You, people need structure. So if the structure is given to you, it's it's easy sometimes to kind of play within that structure and to really let your wings spread, which I think is one reason why poems have certain structures, even though really it's a free-for-all. You can sure. basically do whatever you want and call it a poem. Um, but there are plenty of structures and there's certain parts of a poem's structure that you can find in almost any poem. Well, yeah, and these structures are just things that were repeated enough by enough people because mm-hmm. someone did it first right. and someone else thought, hey, that's pretty clever. Yeah, I like that. And enough people did it to where it became, you know, canon. Canon? Sure. All right, canon. Structure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, for instance, I said stanzas. In prose, you have paragraphs. and In poems, you have stanzas. It's, it's like a poem's paragraph. Yeah, and what, you know, how you actually type that on the page is very much thought out, as in where you take the line breaks to the next line and where you might put that period. Uh, if you, if you break a sentence up, or you, or you can have one sentence that's super long on one line, mm-hmm. and then three words of a sentence on another line, and then one word, one word, one word on each line. Everybody's gonna hate your poem, but. <laughs> no, not necessarily. You could do that. <laughs> Or if you choose to break a sentence in the middle of a line, uh, that actually has a name that's called enjambment, and it's all part of like this wacky, crazy poetic structure world. But that's the thing, and there actually is a type of poetry called concrete poetry where the shape that the poem takes on the page um, is is meant to to visualize something or to be a, a depiction of like a picture, basically. Yeah, I'm not into that. No, I'm not either. I think most poets aren't. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I think the ones that do, it's like... So like a poem of a windy river is like typed in such a way that if you blur your eyes, it looks like a windy river. Sure, right. That's that's called a concrete poem, I believe. I, I think on the nose is another word for it. Right, yeah. <laughs> so most poem, most poets aren't breaking lines. They're not doing enjambment. Um to make a picture it's to, to it's meant to have to either point out a word sure. to play with a series of words mm-hmm. um or just to um create a rhythm that otherwise they wouldn't be able to if they just did sentence by sentence on a line yeah and you know even when i wrote as a novice that poem that i submitted i i found myself doing that just instinctively after studying poetry and stuff mm-hmm. like oh this word I'm going to capitalize it, and it's going to go on a line by itself. 
Right, exactly. Oh, they'll love this. And yeah. New Yorkers going to go crazy for that. <laughs> That's what I thought. So I ran across a guy named Robert Creeley, who's apparently very well known for his enjambment. Uh, so <laughs> he can hear, seriously. So here's a poem from, uh, The Language or part of some lines from his poem, The Language. Locate I love you somewhere in teeth and eyes. Bite it, but. So if you just read it like that, it's whatever. It's a poem. <laughs> but this is how he has the line breaks. And apparently he's well known for reading his poems out loud and, and like leaving a beat after just about every line. Uh-huh. Locate I love you some. Wherein teeth and eyes bite it but. Right? Yeah. Now, can't you just see everybody in a cafe going like this? <laughs> yeah, snapping. <laughs> After uh-huh. that? But this guy's like a master of enjambment because if you take it and you look at it, especially when you look at it, it, it just really changes the meaning of the words. Yeah. You know? I think master of enjambment should be your rap name <laughs> for sure. <laughs> oh, apparently you take your... Um, oh, is there a thing? Yeah. You take your last, the last meal you ate and put Lil in front of it. I'm Lil Ramen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Lil Fried Chicken and Collards. Really? That's what you had? Yeah. Where'd you get it? Hopstoon. Oh, downstairs? Good? Yeah. I've had the chicken. I haven't had the greens. Oh, they're great. I'll try them out. Perfect. They're like not mushy. They're not undercooked. They're just, they're great. I had the ramen from downstairs. Yeah, that's good stuff. Just my most common meal here. Lil Ramen. Hmm. Or I had the Don, uh, the Don Don. Maybe Lil Don Don would be better. <laughs> or a little Don Don ramen. Yeah. <laughs> little Don Don's good. Uh, I was little nachos for a, a little while. Yeah. And then I ate something else. <laughs> then you had another meal. Yeah. I was little nachos for about eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, there's something else called the a cesura, C A E S U R A. Yeah. And that's a pause in the middle of a line. And again, these are all just. That's usually where there's a period in the middle of a line. Well, that's an enjambment. No, an enjambment is like a break. Oh, a break in a sentence. Yeah, the caesura is right. where there's punctuation, typically a period, in the middle of a line. Yeah, yeah, I had those backwards. Yeah. And these are all just, you know, ways to play with the structural effect of your poem, basically. Exactly. Uh, you can, you know, rhyme scheme is a, if you've taken any kind of English class, you definitely, they would hammer home the rhyme scheme of it's a test question, you know, like what is the rhyme scheme of this poem? Right. Uh, and that's the pattern and the rhyming pattern and, and the lines basically. And, you know, it's ABA or ABB depending on what rhymes with what. Right. And the, the, the rhyme scheme is always described by like that. So you, depending on how many lines, let's say you have four lines, you've got uh, a, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. Well, the rhyme, the lines that rhyme, say your first and third and second and fourth rhyme, they're going to share the same letter. Right. So A, B, A, B is how your rhyme scheme would be written out. And anybody who knows poetry would be able to look at that and understand what, what lines of the poem rhyme. It's pretty simple. Yeah. I think I just made it way harder than it actually is. No, I don't think so. Uh, meter, you've probably heard um, your teacher talk about meter too, and that's the actual rhythmic structure. And um, there, you're mainly talking about the stresses on the syllables, right? Um, and this, to me, is one of the really neat things about poetry: is the sort of uh, and the sentence they use in here is actually a good one. He'd like to have some pumpkin pie, you know, 
the way that that's stressed is very, just very sing-songy and sort mm-hmm. of playful. Yeah. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's almost like a, a dance in your mouth. I always dance around <laughs> when I'm asking for pumpkin pie. I'd like to have some pumpkin pie. Yeah, and that's how, you just did jazz hands. <laughs> um, and again, that's just how, you know, you're stressing the words and how you're playing with the words. And that's the meter. Yeah. It, it creates that rhythm. Right. So in a meter, uh, the basic unit of a meter is a foot. And it's a, a foot is, it can be any number of stressed and unstressed syllables. Usually it's up to four, right? And there's different names for different types of feet. So everyone's heard of iambic pentameter. Yeah. Up until yesterday, I had no idea what iambic pentameter really was. I yeah, just like, knew Shakespeare sure. wrote in it a lot, right? Yeah. Well, an iam is actually, it's a foot. It's a, it's a type of stressed and unstressed syllable pairing that is used to create, uh, the meter of a poem. So an iam is a, an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Right. And the example this article gives is the word partake. Yeah. Right? So par is unstressed, take, has a, a little more of a stress to it, right? Mm-hmm. And if you put five iams together, so partake, 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 partake. <laughs> Very creative. All uh, right. Um, <laughs> one line of a poem. Yeah. What you have there is iambic pentameter. Penta meaning five and five, uh, five iams on a line making up the meter. Iambic pentameter. But there's plenty of different kinds of, uh, meters that a poem can have. Based on the type of stressed and unstressed syllable pairing, and then the number of times that type of pairing appears on a given line. Yeah. Uh, so if you had four iams, it would be iambic tetrameter. Right. And so on and so on. Yeah. Um, there's another one if, like the word banjo is a stressed syllable followed by an unstressed syllable. Uh, that's a trochee. Yeah. And you could have a, a trochaic pentameter. And that's five trochees in a line. Yeah, which sounds, I mean, all this sounds very dense, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Yeah, once you kind of know the, what the words mean behind it. Right. Uh, what else is there? There's a dactyl, which is a stressed syllable followed by two unstressed syllables, like capital. Capital? Yeah, not a fan of those. No? What about the anapest? Not bad. That's two unstressed uh, followed by a stressed. Um, the example they give is 17. Kip Winger was a big fan of the anapest. <laughs> Uh, an anthebrach is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable and then another unstressed syllable. Right. Um, like archaic. Yeah. And then lastly, there's the cretic. That's my favorite. So it's stressed, unstressed, stressed, like trampoline. Yes. Or trampoline. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the cretic. Are you? Cretic for life. But think about, think about this though, like, this is, again, now we're starting to kind of like pull back the curtain, and this is what poets are dealing with. This is, this kind of stuff describes a line. Yeah. A line will have different types of these types of meters, these different feet that make up these different types of meter. Well, yeah, and my hope with this episode is that if you slept through this in English class, mm-hmm. you might listen now and say, Oh, hey, that's actually kind of neat when you think about it in those terms. Yeah. At the very least, I hope you realize how hard poets are working. Sure. To go unappreciated by most people. Yeah, they're earning the lack of money that they don't make. Right. All right. Well, let's take another break. Pour one out for the poets. Mm. And we'll be right back. Stop. 
So, Chuck, um, there's different types of poet- poetry too, based oh, yeah? on you take yeah <laughs> you take all these this structure or these different effects, and you'll have different types of poem. You put them together, right? So, a sonnet has a specific rhyme scheme. It's got to be 14 lines long, or else you can just take your poem and go home because it's not a sonnet. Yeah, um, a ballad is one that's. Um, written in stanzas of four lines each, has a specific meter of iambic tetrameter, which is four, four iams per line, and then it alternates with iambic trimeter, three iams per line. Yes. Um, and that one I've always heard also is supposed to basically, it's supposed to be a narrative, right? Aren't ballads, at least as far as music goes, a narrative song? Yeah, but I'm not sure... It's probably the same thing in poetry, right? I would think so. I mean, I definitely know it is in a song. Yeah. In like a murder ballad specifically, which is, uh, in fact, I think I wanted to put that down as one of our uh, ideas to do an entire show on. Murder ballads? Yeah. Or narco ballads? Cool, rich tradition. Is there such a thing? Oh, yeah. Um, it's like huge, huge in Mexico, like singing basically ballads about these outlaws. Um, there's a, uh, Heisenberg got his own on Breaking Bad. Really? Mm-hmm. It's called Bad Ombre. I can't remember what it was called. <laughs> um, haiku, boy, oh boy, in the early days of stuff you should know. Yeah. We put out a call for haikus, or haiku. Is it haiku? Plural? Haiku. And um, traditionally, a haiku is three lines long, five syllables in the first line, seven syllables in the second, and five in the third. And um, all these years later, occasionally we will still get the random haiku from a listener, but we got them a lot for a while and, um, until we said stop. Remember that guy who got us by sending in a haiku and it was a well-known t-shirt? Oh yeah. We read it on the air. I think that's when we said stop. Yeah. He fooled us. Yeah. I remember that. Uh, a Sestina, S-E-S-T-I-N-A. Um, this one's a little different. Instead of a rhyme scheme, it repeats words. So it has, uh, it's broken into stanzas, each with six lines. Mm-hmm. And the six words that end each line, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, end each line in the first stanza are then repeated as N words in every other stanza. Right. And I think you have an example here, the John Ashbery poem, Farm Implements and Rutabagas in a Landscape. Yeah, um, everybody go look up that poem and read it out loud to yourself. It's uh-huh. actually really kind of difficult the way it's laid out. You should read the first couple stanzas maybe. Okay. Uh, the it's, first kind of long though. The you ready? Yeah, yeah, it is a little long. The first of the undecoded messages read: Popeye sits in thunder, unthought of, from that shoebox of an apartment. From livid curtains, hue a tangram emerges, a country. Meanwhile, the sea hag was relaxing on a green couch. How pleasant! See, if you start reading it like William Shatner, poetry <laughs> really comes out. To spend one's vacation on La Casa de Popeye, she scratched, her cleft chin's solitary hair. She remembered spinach. And so throughout this poem, spinach, thunder, apartment, and, uh, well, apparently three other um, words <clears throat> come through and are reused throughout the whole um, 
the whole poem. Yeah. And it gets really, really dense. And then all of a sudden it just zooms out onto Popeye, who finally makes an appearance at the end. And it just becomes kind of... And it goes... Egg, egg, egg. It's it's a neat poem, actually. It's, yeah. It's called... Um, what's it called again? Farm Implements and Rutabagas in a Landscape by John Ashbery. Check it out. Yeah. And again, to me, this is like the fun of poetry. Is It's almost like a, a challenge to a writer to say like, all right, try to write a sestina. Mm-hmm. Like this weird structure and... And not only do you have to meet the needs of that structure, but it has to be good and creative and interesting. Right. Just really neat to me. I love the kind of wordplay. Um, I might start writing poetry. I think you should. Uh, a Villanelle, one of the most famous poems of all time, Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, mm-hmm. is a Villanelle. And it's a 19-line poem that... Um, it only it's made up of only two end rhyme sounds that are repeated throughout the poem, which is tough on its own. But then to make things even worse, or not worse, but <laughs> more trickier tricky for the writer. Worse. The first and third lines are repeated in a specific pattern all through the poem. And um I guess I'll read the first couple of bits from this one. I won't read the whole thing though. Uh Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end know dark is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave, by, crying how bright. Their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. So um that's probably the most famous example of all time of the Villanelle, don't you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a good... It's a good I think one of the reasons why that poem's so famous and universally loved is because it's you understand what it means. Yeah. It's pretty pretty superficial really as far as poems go. I'm sure there's way more stuff going on right beneath the surface. Sure. But you can also appreciate it on its face as well. That's, yeah, it's about a you know, dying father or something, right? Sure, but it's also uh, basically a call to arms to go live. Like don't ever just give in to to death and your impending mortality, like live. Live, live until, live so much that you rage against the idea of, of dying eventually. You need to go home and watch Dead Poet Society. <laughs> You're basically just described the plot. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Uh, an ode is something, um, it usually celebrates, well, it's an ode. It celebrates a person or not even a person. It can just, it can celebrate anything, but it's an ode to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's to say, hey, you did a great job. Here's a poem for you. <laughs> uh, which is sort of like an elegy, but an elegy is about someone who died. Yeah, did you read an elegy for five old ladies by Thomas James Merton that this this article no. calls out? Is it good. Yeah, it's it's unusual in that it's about a um an actual real life event, um, where apparently at a, a an assisted living home, maybe in the '60s, I think, um, five older women were in a car. Waiting for the driver. Oh no! And I think the um, the car, the transmission came out of park, and it rolled into a lake, and they all drowned. Ugh. And Merton, I guess, read about it in the New York Times and was moved to write a, a poem about it. Wow! Um, which is it, the whole. It's a bizarre poem all around, huh. especially the fact that it was based on a true story. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, there are epigrams. 
That one's good. Did you read that one? Yeah, go ahead. So an epigram is a poem that's like satirical or funny. Yeah, I don't know if this one's funny, but it's it's maybe satirical. It's existentially satirical. All right. A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. Ooh. Yeah. You yeah, got to like read that. it a few times. It gets better. <laughs> <laughs> then you have uh, a really, really niche type of poem, an obeyed, A-U-B-A-D-E, I yeah. believe is how it's pronounced. And it's about the arrival of morning. If it's not about the arrival of morning, it's not an obeyed. If it is, it's an obeyed. Yeah, and a lot of times, um, wink, wink, arrival of morning means, hey, I just made some sweet love, and I'm really bummed that the sun's coming up, because last night was a gas. Right. <laughs> I think you just wrote an obeyed off the top of your head. I think so. Uh, and then an epistle is a, a poem, usually, that's addressed to... Uh, someone very close to the poet. And, you know, there's some overlap with these, for sure. Yeah. Like an epistle can also be, uh, well, you know, it could be an epigram, I guess. Sure. This epistle that this article, this article on How Stuff Works did a really good job. I suspect it was written by an English professor. Oh, yeah? Yeah. A, a poetry expert clearly wrote this. Um, this is not just from research, right? So the the author calls out a poem called Dear Mr. Finelli as an example of an epistle. And I went and read it. And it is really interesting. It's about this guy who notices... So it's basically, it's like an open letter to Mr. Finelli. But Mr. Finelli invited correspondence because he's the like the manager of a subway station, the oh, 79th wow. Street subway station. And there's a sign that says, notice any need of improvements or anything wrong? Get in touch with me, the manager, Mr. Finelli of the 79th Street subway station. And so the author's writing to him with suggestions and it starts to just kind of devolve into like, this existential crisis that the guy's going through, and he reveals that he hasn't been sleeping very well because he's really worried about the world, and it just really goes off the rails. Wow. It's a pretty neat poem, Dear Mr. Finelli by Charles Bernstein. I'll have to check that out. You should. Uh, and, you know, we've talked a, unspecifically about what a lot of these poems are using, um, literary effects, and anything that you use in your prose, um, you know, symbolism and metaphor and simile, you also can use and in fact oftentimes do use in poems um simile obviously is something uh where you have to use like or as um that hillside is is like a mm-hmm. uh <laughs> boy, be a great poet <laughs> that hillside is like, like a, a beer belly <laughs> there you go <laughs> i like that yeah um, whereas a metaphor is saying something is something else, that <laughs> that hillside is a beer belly. Right. Um, and the example they used is the wonderful poem, The Road Not Taken. Uh, when you're talking metaphor, it's, um, you know, maybe more about your life choices than the actual road that's written about. Right, but they point out that Frost in The Road Not Taken doesn't even say, and by the way... These right. these roads are really a metaphor for your <laughs> life choices. Yeah, sure. It's just left to the reader to to make that guess and assumption, which makes it a far better poem. Yeah. Than if he's like, and at, at the end, he's like, and these are really your life choices I was talking about this whole time. 
Yeah, I think if I remember my poem correctly, it wasn't about the pile of leaves even that I didn't reference. It might have been about the uh, the boys, the the childlike qualities that ultimately fade away right. with age. Yeah. Which I, man, I was right in on that when I was 22 years old. That's great. You got to find that poem. Yeah. It's probably not as good as I remember. Uh, you got a poem to read? Yeah, I got two. Okay. Um, and I, I may have one. I was talking about um, newer poets, and I mentioned Derek Brown, who uh, is a good dude. And you should go see Derek if you have a chance. He's It's always a fun time. Because some of his poems are very funny. Some of them are just beautiful love poems that, like, you know, you see the ladies in the audience kind of squirming in their seat a little bit. like or swooning. Yeah, they swoon. Yeah. He does a good job with that. Uh, but this one's called Ringlets, and um, he has quite a few books out. I think one's coming out soon. Um, here we go. Young prom ladies in loud dresses and ringlets mingle outside the restaurant in oversized men's suit jackets. Their dates smile smoking, shivering, pretending not to shiver. The thing you said was dead is not dead. No virgin deserves a cigarette. We should head to the emergency room and just pop our heads in and say hello. Tell them we are all right so they don't think we only visit when things are bad. We are breathing without tubes today. They don't make pills yet for this feeling. It's like finding fruit in the snow. I want to call down cocktails and black tire jacks from the heavens. I want to break into something. That kind of good. Your eyes are the kind we have all been waiting for. When I hear a single note sustain in a room with bad lighting, I think of us, both of our bodies shivering. Nice. Good stuff. Yeah. And that's an example of just, you know, one of his... I mean, sort of playful, but some of them are really, really funny. Like, he's kind of part comedian up there sometimes. Nice. Yeah. Derek Brown. Derek Brown. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even talk about Poetry Slams. Do we no. need to? Yeah, well, it's kind of like a, a championship. A tournament. nodding, yes. Talk about Poetry Slams. It's like a tournament. Yeah. Where you got your poetry and you move on. And I'm assuming, I've never seen one, but I don't think you take the same poem from... Slam to like, oh, round around. Round around. Hopefully you have different poems so people don't have to hear the same one like four or five times. Yeah, and I think at the end, if you end up tied, you uh, leg wrestle. Sure. <laughs> As is the tradition. All right. Uh, you got one? Uh, I do. Um, I'm going to say F, but that's not what Philip Larkin writes. Oh, okay. Philip Larkin, uh, he's uh, British, I think. He's writing in the 50s, 60s maybe, I think. Um and he is good. Yumi introduced me to him. This one's called This Be the Verse. They F you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were effed up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can. And don't have any kids yourself. Wow. <laughs> I love that guy. That's the, I love that poem. This be the verse. Uh, and I'm going to finish with um, probably my favorite new poet, new meaning just around now, is uh, David Berman of the band Silver Jews, uh-huh. who uh, I got into them because he did an album. He's, he's buddies with uh, Steve Malkmus and Bob Nastanovich from Pavement. Well, they, he, they, wasn't Malcolmus in Silver Juice? He was for a couple of albums, oh, okay. and so was Nastanovich. And uh, Berman was the the songwriter. I gotcha. And it was kind of Malcolmus' side project. And shout out to Nastanovich, who I kind of know now. 
Wow. Because of this podcast. Nice. I'm getting to meet my heroes. Uh, anyway, Berman, he's putting out many books of poetry. One of them is called Actual Air, which on the cover features the King and Queen building over in Dunwoody, oh. which is kind of funny. Uh, anyway, this is called Imagining Defeat by David Berman. She woke me up at dawn, her suitcase like a little brown dog at her heels. I sat up and looked out the window at the snow falling in the stand of blackjack trees, a bus ticket in her hand. Then she brought something black up to her mouth, a plum, I thought, but it was an asthma inhaler. I love that line. I reached under the bed for my menthols, and she asked if I ever thought of cancer. Yes, I said, but always as a tree way up ahead in the distance where it doesn't matter. And I suppose a dead soul must look back at that tree so far behind his wagon where it also doesn't matter, except as a memory of rest or water. Though to believe any of that, I thought, you have to accept the premise that she woke me up at all. Dave Berman. Wow, that was good. Good one. That's one I want to like go back and read again. You can do that here. Okay. Uh, man, we did poetry, man. Yeah, we didn't mention illustrations. You know, you can have illustrations with your poetry. It's not uh, like the great Shel Silverstein. Our article points out um, was very famous for using great illustrations to enrich the poetry. Yeah, and sometimes you wouldn't really get the poem without yeah. the illustration. Like something's missing. It's yeah. about a man who's sitting there like, I dressed myself, and he lists off all the stuff that he, he put on, Yeah, but he still feels like something's missing, and then in the illustration, he's not wearing pants. <laughs> so you wouldn't quite yeah. get it, you know? Or my that. poem, you, I might have a, a image of a kid crashing in a pile of leaves. Right, but you would never say that that's what he was doing. <laughs> it would just end and then have an arrow pointing to the picture, and underneath the arrow would say, get it? <laughs> right. The, eh? Question eh? mark. Uh, if you want to know more about poetry, there are a lot of places that you could start. Like, go to the Poetry Foundation, for example. That'd be a great resource for you to just find some poems to start reading out loud to yourself in your bedroom at night, alone. You were starting to sound like Steve Brule. <laughs> go to the stupid library. <laughs> <laughs> put that in your milk. Uh, if Since I said put that in your milk, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is about um, band names. Um, hey guys, been listening for a while now. I'm loving it. Also, really enjoy all of Josh's Simpsons references. Uh, since I know, hey Matt, by the way, we met Matt Groening once in person, and um, he was very kind to us. And we said that we had a podcast where we mentioned the Simpsons quite a bit. And he actually asked for the name and wrote it down. <laughs> and and then he looked at us dead in the <laughs> eye, crumpled the paper, and threw it away. Right. Uh, he was very nice. So I wonder if he listened. Yeah, we have signed scripts. Scripts. For yeah. That. yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that was bucket list stuff. And big thanks to Jesse yeah. for the millionth time yeah. for that experience. Um, anyway, here we go. Uh, since I know you two can appreciate solid band names, I want to tell you this story. Uh, the other day, my wife was trying to tell me about a time she went to see a band. She said, I can't remember their name. And like a genius bolt of lightning out of nowhere, I just blurted out, Pig Chesterton and the Knuckle Ducks? It was as if my brain and the universe were one solid band name creating machine. Wow. I was super impressed with the odd combo of words my brain created in that split second of time. Uh, also, to further the laughs and validity of this as a band name, my wife actually said, I don't know who they are. <laughs> Still makes me laugh. Anyway, thanks, guys, for such a fascinating, informative, and funny show. And that is Matt Burns from Gilroy, California. Nice. Thanks a lot, Matt. That was a, that was a pretty good... 
email. Yeah, just to channel that band name. Not bad. He's a band name generator. Agreed. Oh, I've got one for you. The Benedict Cumberbatch name generator. It just comes up with all sorts of random stuff. My favorite is... That's a website? Yeah. Bend and snap cummerbund. <laughs> what is it? Just rearrange? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's good stuff. Man, I love the internet. Uh... If you want to get in touch with us like Matt did, you can tweet to us. I'm at Josh um, Clark and at SYSK Podcast. Charles is at Charles W. Chuck Bryant on Facebook and at Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>